Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. Has your relationship with breakfast felt strained lately? It's just too much work for a weekday, right? Well, it's time to head over to the egg aisle and pick up Just Crack an Egg. It's a hot, fluffy scramble that's ready in less than two minutes. Just add a fresh egg over the chopped veggies, shredded cheese, hearty meat, and potatoes, then stir, microwave, and reignite your love of breakfast. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. The flagship rewards credit card offers three times points on all travel purchases and two times points on everything else. Three times the points on travel means getting rewarded while road tripping or even commuting to work. You'll also get other benefits like a statement credit for global entry and TSA pre-check of up to $100, 24-7 stateside member support and access to Navy Federal's online shopping center. Check out NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply now. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org slash flagship for more information. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me from an editing bay somewhere in Culver City, I think, it's Andy Greenwald! Oh, I'm deep in the bunker, buddy. That's not I, even I, a bit. I'm That's real. This. Baby's first edit is underway. It was an intimate tent process. Yeah. So Andy's on his cell phone. He's calling from the first pass he's doing on his show Briar Patch, the pilot episode. Uh, so he's he's off editing that. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about popular culture, as we usually do. And then later in the episode, I was joined by the amazing actress Carla Gugino, who's in Haunting of Hill House, which is on Netflix now, and got a lot of... Uh, Got a lot of people watching. I saw Twitter really lighting up over this over the weekend. So I'll be talking to her about the show. We, t- we get into about the first five, six episodes. Not deep spoiler territory, but I, you know, I would watch some of it first if you can, just to kind of get a sense of it. But Greenwald, spotlight's on you, man. Wait, wait. I have to, I have to ask you something first. Oh, and sure. I want to apologize, by the way, to, to Kaya and all the audio fidelity heads out there that I forgot my fancy recorder today. Yeah. And it, I'm on my cell phone. It sounds like you're in a wind um, tunnel. I'm in a wind tunnel. I'm in a- a lot of can you hear me nows and I apologize. So I, I, I got to ask, remember when you were on vacation like a year ago and when you were gone, I was like, oh, by the way, Nick Kroll and Jason Menzoukas are coming in to fill in for you. Yeah. Was this revenge having Carlo Gugino come in when I'm just not even within the same zip code as the podcast? Is, is this you getting back at me? No, but there is some subtle ringer pod guest wars going on. I, we had Carla on and Bill was quite upset that I did not introduce him to her. And I said that it was payback for being shut out of the Ethan Hawke proceedings. So that's it, fair. Sh- shit gets deeper should here. I, who should I bring up my personal issue with Dave Chang for not introducing you Jessica Largi, the chef of the hot new LA restaurant, Simone? Is I don't, that, that's there, a great, you should hit up Isaac Lee you know, or Dave Chang himself because oh. you're such an avid listener of his podcast. <laughs> it's a great podcast, guys. I don't know what you're doing listening to this one. That's really where it's at. Uh, what do you want to talk about? You want, I, I don't, you know, obviously you're like, you're still, you're still in the early stages of the edit. So you probably can't give like a huge PowerPoint on that, but you know, I mean, I have some stuff I can tell you about. I did this weekend, some pop culture related stuff. Uh, I'm curious how, how you're doing. Well, I, I'll tell you one thing about editing and I'd like to hear about your weekend. And then there is a question I have for you about pop culture that is a little self-serving, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So the only thing I'll say about editing so far is that it is the closest I've ever been to being in a nineties movie like Swordfish that's mostly about like hacking yeah. because I'm sitting with our friend Gina who is also 
the exemplary editor of this project, and she's got like seven screens in front of her, and she types really fast, and she has access to everything. Right. And it's amazing. And I'm like, could you just make her say this, but say it backwards and upside down, and then add music to it? She's like, yes. <laughs> and then she hacks into the mainframe, and I don't know. It's like, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. So that is, I highly recommend that experience for, for anyone. Are you just sitting there, can you dial up, can you be like, can you put Olivia Coleman in this? <laughs> like... So far, the only thing I'm getting pushback on is I suggest adding the Benny Hill theme music to nearly every scene. Yeah. Um, and apparently there's some tone issues with that. Yeah, different vibe. Yeah, I don't even know if that's coming from the studio or network. But so, no, so far it's just fascinating. We're just putting it together and taking it apart and putting it back together again. It's very Thanos in the third act of Infinity War. Does okay. that make sense? It doesn't work out very well for a lot of people in Infinity Wars. So I hope that you're one of the people who don't get disappeared. <laughs> no spoilers, please. So what did you do this weekend culturally? So my wife was away. Uh, this isn't supposed to be like personal sharing time, but I had like the whole weekend to myself. And what I did was I went and saw First Man alone at the uh, the Cinerama Dome at the Arclight. I highly recommend seeing that movie on a big screen if you're going to see it. And it's been really interesting to read the response, which I think is kind of muted towards this movie. And it's obviously, if you don't know, it's Damon Chazelle's new film follow-up to La La Land. And it stars Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong and essentially documents, I think like about a, an eight-year period of time uh, from when he joins the space program to when he lands on the moon with the Apollo mission. And like, for one thing, I think I thought going into it, it was going to be this sweeping epic. And in terms of time covered i suppose it is but a lot of the story is told very intimately even in the space travel scenes a lot of it is told in insert shots of dials and things shaking and bolts coming loose and wires catching it's a very very tactile movie but it's a very tactile movie very close up it's not a lot of like huge shots of a rocket taking off and there's there's some of that but it's not like Apollo 13 where you get a sense of the scope of the mission and the scope of the project it's very much Neil's perspective the entire time and I think a lot of people have been talking about the Gosling performance because we're kind of getting to the point where you get one of two performances from Gosling you either get notebook nice guys Gosling that's like incredibly charismatic and could just essentially sell you like a Chevy with three wheels if you wanted to or you get this kind of introverted internal muted Gosling which I think would be Blade Runner and and this film which is like everything is repressed everything is tightly controlled I actually thought it was a very good performance by him but I see where people are coming from where La La Land I think La La Land and First Man are equally earnest films. They're very, very sincere about their subject matter. I think that all of the sap that was in La La Land, I don't know whether this was a reaction to the critiques, some of the critiques of La La Land, or whether it's supposed to be accurate to this sort of early 60s, post-World War II uh, stoicism that Chazelle kind of imbues the characters with. But like... There's not a lot of sentimentality in this movie. There's not a lot of emotion in this movie. In fact, a lot of it is about a person who is basically repressing all of that despite going through several traumas over the course of the movie. So it's uh, it's an interesting movie. I would be curious to know your thoughts on it, but it, it is it is very much a it, one of those movies that overwhelms you and is a very physical experience. So I, I, I'd recommend seeing it on a big screen. I really want to see this movie. I, I think my question for you is, what if my main point of reference for loving Ryan Gosling is crazy, stupid love. Then you're in more of the 
nice guys camp and I and the big short camp. Right. And you're like, why would this guy play with one hand tied behind his back? I mean, it's the same thing that I think a lot of people are talking about with Tom Hardy, where you have this incredibly charismatic movie star who is actively trying to sort of deflect or hide behind Sabotage accents it. and yeah. masks and all this stuff. It, I think Gosling is definitely trying to be iconic in this movie, but he's going about it as... I think this is his read on like, oh, I'm, I'm like Sam Shepard here. Like, I'm I'm going to do this sort of, I'm going to just be the outlines of this person and you're not going to be able to see inside. But, you know, it, at times I think it, it it hurts the film itself. The other thing that I saw this weekend that I did really want to talk to you about. And, oh, wait, oh, yeah, wait. You go ahead. I just wanted to take your temperature and we can talk about this more when I actually see the movie. But I understand that there is some um, political uproar over First Man. And again, I haven't read the details, but I believe it has something to do with the fact that, uh, Neil Armstrong in the film is married to Queen Elizabeth. And what? people are taking issue with that, right? Because it is meant to be a much more American film. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is It is a strange... It, I didn't think I'd see a crossover event between these two things. You know, it is fair to say that First Man it does exist in the crown-expanded universe. It's true. The universe known as reality. Yeah. Um, the other thing I saw this weekend that I thought you would really, really enjoy, if you get a chance, is um, is Beirut which is a movie that came out earlier this year, kind of came and went. It's written by watch icon Tony Gilroy, although it was an older script that I think got dusted off and made. And it stars John yeah. Hamm as a alcoholic uh, ne- mediator and negotiator who used to work in the Middle East, used to live in Lebanon, and uh, a tragedy strikes. He leaves, he's, he just falls into the drink, and then he is called back to Beirut to do one last job to to sort of negotiate the the freedom of of one of his old friends from his from his earlier days in in Beirut and this movie is very by the numbers like i think it it pretty much is like when people are like whatever happened in 90s thrillers like they're right there it's Beirut nobody went and saw it that's why they don't make these anymore but uh, right now it's like 99 cents on apple so you, if you like are just like what the hell i'll take a shot at it it's only a, it's a really cheap rental and it is at its best, really fucking good. Because it's like, what if Don Draper was a hostage negotiator? That sounds great. Why didn't they just call it that? And Don That's Draper, hostage negotiator, sell. probably gets a, a more of a box office. And it's got so many Gilroyisms. It's just, it, it's essentially just like, I think they bring up this line a couple of times. It's just like, let the downside of that ring in your ears. You know, it just like everything yeah. is... Is like you're shitting me up and down. It's everything is like it got like this little <laughs> bit of spice to it, and it's it's actually a really really entertaining movie. By the way, the phrase "fall into the drink" sounds delightful. <laughs> that sounds like what you should do in your swimming pool after a long day. This does not sound like a cautionary tale for an alcoholic whatsoever. Yeah, I realize that Culver City is lovely this time of year. There is a robust wind that's probably affecting the audio fidelity here, and I apologize for it. But I did just want to make a question before we get into that interview. So last week, Chris, you correctly gave everyone homework that we should all watch the Romanoffs, Matthew Weiner's new sort of anthology series for Amazon, the first two episodes of which are available now. And I think one episode will be available for the next subsequent, I don't know, however many weeks. I didn't do it. And I apologize. I did not do my homework <laughs> for situation, circumstances outside of my control. But I did wonder about the lack of urgency, considering this is a new TV show from the creator of one of the all-time great TV shows, and with a cast of you know dozens of people that I really like and admire. And I just hadn't really thought about it this way before. This is very self-serving, right? Because I didn't do my homework. But I also didn't feel any urgency about it. And I realized, you know, this may be, we may look back on this moment as like, 
the apotheosis of this auteur era where basically Matthew Weiner could do anything, but it lacks the thing that other people wanted from him, right? Which is his ability to weave a narrative over multiple episodes, which in effect not just creates serialized drama, but still, even in the streaming era, creates an urgency to watch it. Yes. You want to talk to people about it. If he's just sort of slow-dripping eight movies that are loosely connected to each other, I didn't feel the need, I didn't feel fired up about it. I don't know if you felt that way. I don't know if other of our listeners felt that way or if I'm really just covering my ass here because I blew it. Yeah, I think Alison Herman's actually going to be writing a story about this tomorrow. And so I'm really interested to see what she says about it. Maybe we'll have her on later in the week to chat a little bit about this. I think we're at a certain point where we need technology to meet us halfway. And here's what I'm saying by that. And I don't want to throw away a billion-dollar idea here, so uh, consider this. I don't know if this is an official trademarking of this idea. I'm sure somebody else has thought of this. But I think we start, we're, we're at the point now where we need bookmarks for television shows. Like, we essentially need some sort of product or some sort of way to say, like, okay, like, I have expressed interest in these 10 shows of the 150 that have come out this month or these last two months. Now I need to like basically have a process by which I actually watch them because I get so overwhelmed by the wave after wave after wave every week. And I was even just looking at the next couple of uh, the next couple of weeks and it's like The Bodyguard, which is a hugely popular show in England is coming out in next week. Narcos and Little Drummer Girl are coming out in November. You've got the Romanoffs now. I mean, it's just so much plus all the award season movies and Playoff baseball, middle of NFL season, and NBA season starting up. So this is high season for anybody who likes watching anything. You also forgot to mention Deutschland 86. Yeah, Deutschland. I mean, I'm, 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 I forgot to mention 10 things that we want to watch, you know what I mean, that we want to check out. So I almost feel like at this point, it's like uh, people need to have almost a way in which these things are 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 bookmarked and saved to long reads or saved to, to the, like their pocket app. In, in some sort of way, because this stuff really does slide away. You know, for the most part, we've taught, we spent what, like five or six weeks, the last five or six weeks, I think we talked about Better Call Saul almost once a week. Everybody I know likes Better Call Saul. All of them are like either one episode behind, three episodes behind, waiting to watch the whole season one weekend when they get sick. It's really difficult to keep up. I will say in the Romanoff's defense, to some extent, I don't remember everybody coming out of the gate being like, Mad Men is now what I do on my Sunday night. So there, there is the possibility that it could be a slow adoption of this, right? True. And it could be, my guess is, even from reading the small amount of reviews that I glanced at, that there, clearly there are going to be high highs and maybe some frustrating lows or middles, you know? And I look forward to exploring them because I think he's earned that right as a TV creator. And I, I am excited to watch it, but it's also weird. I think we're lucky with the way we do our show now, because I think people listening, and you know, feel free to correct us if I'm wrong about this, know we're going to watch the show, and we're going to talk about it. And maybe they haven't watched it yet either. We're okay in that ecosystem, but it's the sense that, that the general sense of uh, chaos, and like no one really knows what people are watching or want to talk about, it, to me, what's emblematic of that is like looking at Vulture, a website that I very much enjoy. The breathless way that it covers The Good Place a show that you and I both like mm-hmm. very much, but it seems almost out of whack with reality. It just seems like that's a show that has figured out a way to succeed even beyond its excellent content in this era because it's highly serialized and it's a half hour and it somehow feels like less pressure. So it's almost that people, I don't know if people are really watching it and consuming coverage about it the way that they did about Mad Men or Breaking Bad, but it seems better suited to a moment where Vulture and other sites like Vulture and even other podcasts like to break it down and consume it. Yeah. And they've also, you know, they had the, the first two seasons were a matter of people 
basically evangelizing for the show and converting fans. And now it has its fan base and they're in the, okay, now make the leap season. And that's why I think yeah. the the there's so much attention being paid to it because like they have all the people who have caught up with the first two seasons paying attention now. Right. Thanks to Netflix, by yes, the way, we exactly. should say. I mean, that's the reason why the show exists. It, it, you know, it's just funny. Like everything you said, I think is exactly right and true. And yet, both of us have felt that this is going to slow the building season. It doesn't mean that it's not good, but it's just like the the spotlight of urgency has turned to it, maybe for lack of anything else, and. Is it meeting it? I don't know. I, I, you know, this is again. I feel very, very self conscious making this argument on a day when I am woefully unprepared to do a podcast with you, and I'm standing. <laughs> it's fine, man. But it remains interesting to me as I am trying to make a TV show, wondering what what could possibly cut better get people to pay attention in the urgent way we used to that we used to love to. And I say that also realizing what a ridiculous, dismissive, belittling way to refer to dozens of excellent entertainment options as clutter. It shouldn't be this way. I think your idea is probably a good one, especially for those trending older like us who still want to hang on to that essential feeling of being plugged into culture. But as soon as we open up one of the many apps we use, we feel totally overwhelmed in its sea by all the options that have been added since the last time we logged on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man, we're going to let you go. We have our interview with Carla coming up, and we'll be back on Thursday, and I would imagine we, would, we will be talking about Romanoffs on Thursday. I promise. I promise. Thanks, Baranskis. Hey everyone, it's Liz Kelly, and I want to tell you about the second annual Ringer NBA Palooza we have going on next week on Tuesday, October 16th. We'll be streaming a live marathon countdown to tip off with Bill Simmons and the Ringer NBA crew, featuring live podcasts, special guests, Ringer original shorts, and culminating in a Sixers Celtics watch party. You can check it out live on Tuesday across all of our social media platforms. And don't forget to check out our brand new NBA Palooza merch on the ringer.com slash shop. So we're about to get into this interview with Carla Gugino. She came by to talk to us about The Haunting of Hill House and her long and storied career in TV and in movies. It was really neat because Carla's somebody who has kind of lived through all these different eras. She's been working since she was a teenager, honestly, since she was on Who's the Boss, for heaven's sake. But, you know, she has now kind of moved into this era where really interesting stories are being told on streaming television. And that's what The Haunting of Hill House is. It's a, it's a show that's based off a Shirley Jackson novel that is directed and and co-written by a man named Mike Flanagan, who we've talked about before on The Watch. He directed the second installment of Ouija. He did Ouija 2. He directed Hush, and he directed Gerald's Game, which was a Stephen King adaption that, that came out last year, I believe, on Netflix, and Carla was also in that. So she's worked with Mike Flanagan before. Mike Flanagan might be the best horror director in the world right now. He in integrates stuff from sort of the 70s, these kinds of long-tracking zoom shots. He's an incredible artists when it comes to creating tension in rooms, in domestic situations. Hush, Gerald's Game, all use these homes as these elements of terror and fear in the characters' lives. And it's not haunted house per se. It's more about the ghosts of family trauma. And that certainly is our themes that get extended into The Haunting of Hill House. On the surface, you think this is a haunted house show. Uh, you think it's a horror show. But in reality, what this is, is a family show, and it's a family drama, and it's about trauma, addiction, loss, all these things that kind of tear apart families, you know, outside of the horror genre anyway. But what he does is he takes these 
these these very real things and adds a supernatural element. And it's a really, really, really interesting show. It's one of my favorites of the year. It's a little bit of a slow burn. It takes a little while, I think, to get the rhythm of it for for the average viewer. But if you've seen Mike Flanagan stuff before, you'll be familiar with where, where things are going in some ways. So here's my conversation with Carlo Gugino from The Haunting of Hill House. Carlo, we were just talking about The Haunting of Hill House, which is really just this remarkable thing where... I think we hear a lot about like the promise of mm-hmm. you know long form television storytelling. Yeah. And this is a great example of really what you can do with it. Because not only is it just this story that unfolds at its own pace, at its own tempo throughout these episodes, but it's kind of this Trojan horse of this really moving family drama yeah. inside of a horror story. It's the second time you've worked with Mike Flanagan. What was it like going back right after Gerald's game, working with the same director? Different material, some similar themes, though, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a gift working with him. I really do. You know, it's funny. You never know when you'll find your collaborative partners. Yeah. And in this particular case, from the moment that we began Gerald's Game, and I think it was the way in which we began that as well, which was that I was cast— quite last minute. Bruce Greenwood was oh. attached and they had sort of a whole nother plan. And as as we know in Hollywood, things often happen where people fell out and things changed and there were all of these sort of restructuring. And so I had to decide from the moment that I read the script of Gerald's Game until when I was on set was two weeks mm-hmm. when I read it for the very first time. So it was a huge amount of preparation to do in an incredibly short period of time. But the moment that I I Skyped with Mike and he was in a he was scouting in a forest in Mobile, Alabama. Um he'd been his son was obsessed with like dangerous insects, deadly insects. <laughs> and so in the middle of our of our conversation he went, "Oh my god. It's the red sp- they kill you. The spider on the ground right here." <laughs> anyway, so we had a whole I think it was maybe an ant actually. And um so we had this very bonding session in the woods and I was like, "I'm in. I I can see that he has this very clear vision." And so what's really beautiful is this he is so clear and yeah. he is and you are a fan of his as a filmmaker so you know that. He's so specific. He and Michael Feminari who is his director of photography and just an exquisite director of photography. They have shot listed every single frame before you begin and he also edits his own sure. thing. So it's it's there's this really strong structure, this really strong vision and then the allowance for collaboration within that because you have such a sturdy base. So for me, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to act, um, and I'll never forget this because I was such a controlling kid and I was like a straight A student. I was all very, very, very serious. And um, I remember taking my first sort of significant acting class and I was 13. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, I get to lose control in a controlled environment. There was something about the idea that it was my job to let go that made me able to do it and gave me a great sense of freedom. So in that way, he and I, it's a really nice, um, I love different qualities in directors, but that's a really cool combination. Yeah. So when we were doing Gerald's Game, to get back to your question, he said, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna adapt Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And there's a role I think that you'd be really amazing in. And it's funny because originally we had spoken also very early on about the role of Shirley, which Elizabeth Reeser plays so brilliantly. And as these things are always meant to be, and that was very early conversations, but then Olivia started to sort of emerge and that became the clearer route for, for us. And, and, uh, and a lot of stuff just came about together, like the the visual migraines, they weren't in there. and um, The seeing colors yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, just various things that you'll see sort of unfold. But I love working with him so much. And I think he does have it. He has such a, 
he has really an interesting affinity with his genre yeah. because he will never, he will always go deeper with it. Yeah. But I don't think you could make this story as powerfully as this is done, and you'll see when you get to the end, if it didn't have the heightened elements of horror. That's a really good point. So I wanted to ask you about that. What's your relationship to horror as a viewer? Well, I will say this. I'm not a uh, like a horror geek, quote-unquote. Sure. Yeah. Um, the Shining is my second favorite movie oh, of okay. all time. So <laughs> that's a, obviously a horror film, but it's not, I don't perceive, I guess it's funny, it's like, it, that just happens to be because I think the movie is so brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it was the moment in my life as a kid when I saw it that I'd never seen anything like I'd never been that scared. Mm-hmm. So I think its capacity to affect me on that level yeah. has never left me. My, you know, my first favorite movie is all that jazz. So it's totally different. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very um, high up on my it, list as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That yeah. Movie's so good. But, um, so yeah, so I, I, um, I love storytelling and I love it in whatever form it comes in. So for me, I can really appreciate a great horror film, but I'm not going to go to something because it's a horror film. I was curious because I was wondering whether or not awareness of genre ever impacts performance. Like if you're like, okay, so I understand Mm -hmm. there are certain visceral elements Mm -hmm. of this show or movie that has to happen. There has to be like a fright, a scare or whatever. And with your calibrating your performance ever around those kinds of things that you wouldn't ordinarily say— In a you know re- regular drama, absolutely. Uh, especially in this particular one, um, this character that I play, there is an archetypal nature to her. You know, I think when any child loses a parent early on, mm-hmm. the memories are all um, very subjective and. They're accurate maybe to you, but in this case, all the siblings, now grown adults, have an entirely different memory of her. And uh, so for me, it was about a slightly larger-than-life nature to things. She has a spectral quality even without spoiling too much before she is a specter. Yeah, that's really cool to hear you say, too, because it was something that we spoke about. Um, Oddly, I felt really strongly at the beginning, which is not always the case that I have a physical notion like that, but I really wanted that long, flowing hair. Yes, yeah. It was very much influenced by Meryl Streep and French Lieutenant's Woman because she was such a sort of mercurial, curious woman who clearly kind of commanded this kind of power, that character, but you didn't quite ever understand her. And so that was the first visual influence that I got for this and I kind of sent it Mike's way and you know we knew we would stay with dark hair because the family was going to be dark haired but he really kind of loved that idea and then Michael Feminari really did with lighting a lot where when you see her you'll notice if you're kind of watching the subtleties she has this sort of glow around her yeah and I have to rewatch the episodes but we're I feel like your costume design is a, is slightly to the left or right of what everybody else is kind of wearing. For like sure. Henry Thomas is in all these denims yeah. and the kids are kind of in muted colors, but yeah. you kind of pop a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. No, it's true. And we we actually even did a, uh, some really fun stuff. We had such an amazing costume designer and we did um, – there are very specific things done with the costumes in that regard as well, which I guess I would be giving something away. What I was going to say about episode six, which I feel I can say because I know it's been talked about too in the press and you're about to yeah. experience it, is that that's an episode that we shot 97% of the show is in four takes. Wow. So the first minute and a half is traditional coverage and the last minute and a half, and everything else is literally four takes for an hour-long episode. So can you explain what that means for people yes. who don't? Yeah. So the camera never cut. So basically what we what we did is the shortest one is nine minutes. The longest one is 18 minutes. We came in a week early just to rehearse. They lit a uh, ceiling grid of all of our lights. Yeah. So there was someone 
doing, you know, orchestrating which lights were on us at which times. There was a Steadicam operator who from the very beginning of filming was physically training to be able to hold the Steadicam for that long. Oh my gosh. And it alternates between, as the show does, the past in Hill House and the present. And it's going to be an episode that will reveal a lot of things. But one of the things that Mike wanted to do from the very beginning was have it be, so you will never see a cut. There's never any coverage. It, when the camera starts, we all began moving and we didn't stop until that particular section was done. Wow. It's an incredible cinematic feat. The amazing thing about it, too, is that there are some action sequences within it. There are some sort of thrilling sequences. And then there are also emotionally, the, the, my personal favorite section, I'm not in it, is an 18 minute take of the adult children in the funeral parlor. Wow. And they're talking. Yeah. And the camera's with them. And the incredible thing is as sort of showy as it is, it's never flashy. And the camera never takes you out of the narrative. It is so intrinsic to the narrative. And I think that's the other amazing thing about Mike is that he is technically extremely adept, but he's never there to kind of like blow a whistle and say, look at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really a storyteller. Yeah. When you hear the plans for that, What's going through your mind? Are you like, how are we going to pull that off? Do you have complete faith in Mike? Is it a huge discussion among the cast about blocking and how are you going to do this and how am I going to do this? I mean, yeah. it almost sounds like you're getting ready to go play a game that day or uh, totally. something. Totally. Yeah. I know. It's um, it's all those things. Um, I think everybody had a, you know, it feels, I do a lot of theater as well. And so for me, yeah. that was the, the thing of like, when you get out on that stage, you're going to cover anything that doesn't work. You're going to just, the show must go on. Yeah. So in that sense, I think everybody was at the top of their game and and had a, you know, and though we got to rehearse in TV or film, you never get to rehearse enough to, you know, in in play, you get to rehearse for a couple of months and then do eight shows a week. Whereas this was like, you know, we got, you know, five days of rehearsal, which really meant for each section, it was about a day and a half. But you will feel the electricity. Sure. And also we had to, the only way we could kind of pull it off within the constructs of making a television show was that he blocked it with um, our stand-ins for a week before us. So, so he we, was all set. So we also yeah. came into a, an almost a preset situation, which is also challenging. Sure. Because it's about, you might not be following your actual instincts on a physical You're level. You're like, I want to throw my hands yeah, up Yeah, and, and you know, yeah. I, I want to I walk to that door, not this door, yeah. or those kind of things. And for me, I'm always interested in a new experiment and a new way to try to find, to excavate something cool within parameters. Because, you know, any artist you talk to will say limitations are uh, imperative to creativity. And you think you want everything and you want all this freedom. And But the truth is, you know, when you get to a you know, you get to set one day. Right now I'm I'm um, working on a show called Jet, which I'm super excited about that I'm also a producer on. And, and but one of the things with that is like, you know, you get to the set and you're like, that set, um, the, the wall fell down. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we can't shoot in that direction. Yeah. What are we going to do? And inevitably you end up finding something more interesting yeah. than what you had planned. So this was a really cool exercise that I've never gotten to do um, on film. And uh, I just, it's, it's insane. You're talking about Jet and being a producer on it, and I was curious about, because you've done Gerald's Game, and that was released through Netflix, and and this is a 10-episode, one-hour, long-form story released through Netflix. You've always done lots of different kinds of work. Is it a particularly exciting time to be working right now because different things can get made and seen by different people in different places in a way that maybe wasn't always the case? Because you have like all these shows that... I really like like Karen Sisko and stuff right. like that where I'm like, you know, oh man, like I wonder what would have happened if Karen Sisko had been around 
and there had been like an FX yeah. or something to pick that up. What's it like working right now? I know you? it is funny because a lot of people say that about Karen Sisko. And I do think had we been even a year later, yeah. it would have been a different thing. And by the way, Jet is uh, quite Elmore Leonard influenced. Oh, and cool. so, so definitely uh, I play a thief named Daisy Jet Kowalski and she is like a, a sister of Karen's in, in a way. So that's really fun. Um, but there is no doubt. I, I think we're in an amazing time where, you know, I think the only thing now is about kind of curating what you're watching or, or making sure there's so much content and you can all have it at your fingertips. So it's kind of about making sure you um, can get it through, like can actually make people aware of it, yeah. which is wonderful with something like Netflix, obviously, because they're really good at that. Um, but we were, you know, you and I probably are traditionally like it comes on once a week. There's this huge totally. push. People talk about yeah. it throughout a season. You know, how do you like, what have you been watching recently that has broken through for that? Well, um, I have to be honest and say that I literally worked on The Haunting of Hill House for, you know, eight months. Was supposed to have six weeks before I started Jet, and it was one week. Okay. And I'm on day 62 of 86, <laughs> and I'm in 79 of the 86 days. Oh, my gosh. So I've watched very little. Okay. <laughs> um, but I will say Killing Eve yeah. I think is so cool. Um I, I'm trying to think of what else I watch. You know, it's funny because for me to even just watch The Haunting of Hill House <laughs> has been <laughs> epic, and I have to do it for work even. Yeah. So I still haven't seen episode ten, but um, but this this story I think is actually is is designed so much for binging in the sense that, as you said, Mike is such a slow burn. Yeah. And it's it's orchestrated exactly as he wants it to be. There's no sort of randomness to it. He is an auteur in that way in the sense that, you know, so I am really excited for this show in particular sure. to not have it be a weekly thing, but have it be something that you can parse out how you want or you can watch it all at once. Because as you've seen, it kind of sort of unfolds in this way that, you know, he's telling it like a 10 hour movie. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think, no, it's an incredibly, it's, it's just, it's, it's, um, we're in a, you know, I know we keep saying a golden age of television, but I don't really care where it is as much as the fact that there's a place right now for auteurs to tell character driven stories. Yeah. And, um, Francis McDormand who, you know, is Francis McDormand. <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm such a massive fan of that woman on so many levels. But one of the things she said to me one time, uh, she asked me what I was up to, and we know each other not super well, but for a very long time. And she asked me, we were in both in Austin working at the time, and she's like, what are you up to next? And I said, I'm going to do this TV show, da, da, da. And she said, oh, good, because, you know, women's stories, they aren't really three acts. They aren't really an hour and a half. They, yeah. You need longer to tell a woman's story. And I thought it was such an interesting, It may, I've thought about that a lot. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I think it is. It's it's just it's just. There's something about being able to live in it a little bit. And, you know, and that was a very real challenge yeah. with this because this was not an easy character to live in. And each episode, as you've seen, is sort of one character's perspective. And Olivia's comes in nine. So I was like a horse at the gate in terms of having to leave this very, very intense character on the back burner bubbling a lot yeah. while waiting a lot. And, and have then, like such an impact on these people's lives yeah. and the scenes that you're seen in up until yeah. then probably. Yeah. yeah, it's so fascinating what you said about like the, the it's not a three-act thing mm -hmm. because one of the things we often talk about on this podcast is that, you know, when when Mad Men and The Wire and The Sopranos kind of yeah. were happening and everybody was like, this is the new 70s American cinema moment for television yeah. and it's going to go in all these different directions. And I think that there was a, a slight correction where it then started to just feel kind of like a lot of stuff started to feel normal again mm -hmm. and it sort of started to follow very familiar blueprints and slowly but surely everything from 
Mrs. Maisel to, yeah. you know, d- there's lots of different shows and this too that are kind of breaking it apart a little bit. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's just the nature of, by the way, Babylon Berlin. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yep. Obsessed with yeah, Babylon yeah. Berlin. And I did that one. I couldn't stop watching. Um, it's so interesting to say that because I think what happens is, and, I, and I've seen it so many, it's because I have done this for so long. I've seen it in, in a multitude of times in my career, but I would say Spy Kids was a really interesting example mm-hmm. of that because Robert Rodriguez and Elizabeth Avion, his wife at the time and producer of the movie, they really were making their own, cooking up their own little magic in Austin. And it was sort of like we were left alone. Nobody really knew what we were doing. And, and then it became sort of the quintessential family movie where the kids were kick-ass and the parents were sexy and there was this kind of, and they weren't all blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Like, there was this sort of, like, it, it, it sort of broke a lot of boundaries without trying to. It was just a very pure story that Robert wanted to yeah. tell. And then it started being like, oh, let's try to do the Spy Kids-like movies. And I think inevitably what just happens is once people feel that they can understand something, or we do it to each other, too. You know, you you try to quantify something, and you try to go, oh, you're kind of this kind of person. Your podcast might be this kind of thing. Sure. You, you know, you guys are really cool. You love movies, and you're really articulate, <laughs> and da 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 It's like... Yeah, and all those things might be true, but also you're like, yeah, but we want to break new ground every day. Like, we want to, and so... Where's my poetry podcast, man? Exactly. (laughs) I mean, who knows? It might be coming. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's So I think that it's by nature we start to kind of, like, put things into categories, and then it takes a real artist to see something from the inside out to tell a story the way they want to tell it, you know? I mean... Anything new gets resistance. And then once it is successful, everybody wants to do it again. Yeah. It's just the nature of the beast. And same with this. I mean, you know, The Haunting of Hill House. This was not – I mean, Mike had to fight a lot of creative fights. Like this was a – this was a, a, a real – he had a really clear vision oh, and it sure. wasn't a yeah. template to go, oh, it's going to be like this so you guys can feel really comfortable. You know, the great thing is they trusted him and they, you know, they allowed him to do it. But it was, you know, it's it doesn't come – it comes at a cost. Yeah. I mean, I think that the one of the coolest things about it is it starts and you're – you just sort of feel like the net gets pulled out from under you all of a sudden. Yeah. And you're like, I can't tell. Is this a story about addiction and trauma? Like, is that what yeah. – is this just – and you're like, oh, I see what's happening here. Yeah. It's – once you start to feel like – it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the losing control in a controlled environment. Yeah. I think that that's the same thing for viewers. Like, you want to feel like you know where this is, that the director at least knows where it's going so totally. that you don't have to feel like you know where it's going. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Thank yeah. you so much for joining me today. So good and to I can't talk. recommend the show highly enough. Carla, thank you for coming. Thank you so much. <laughs>